Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 3rd, 2020, and this is episode 2703 of the Survival Podcast. Given it's a Monday, a lot of times we do a listener feedback show, and this sort of kind of maybe sort of is in a way uh, feedback, but it's really more, I'm calling it a, a topic roundtable. Uh, because these are just things that have come up recently with a lot of shows that I've done, a lot of conversations I've had on social media and stuff like that. Just a, a wide variety. It's such a wide variety and such a long list. I'm not even going to read you the bullet points in advance. I'm just going to go through them when I get to them. But we're going to be talking about a lot of cool shit today. Gardening. We're going to talk about D3. We're going to talk about HCQ a little bit more, but not a lot. We're going to have a flashback to 2014. Lots of cool stuff. I'm going to tell you about me getting bit by a Hong Kong cardinal. Yeah, I mean the bird kind. I got bit by a cardinal. I'm not kidding. And I got a bunch of other cool shit. I'll get to it in just a minute. Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors first. They do a lot to help take care help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Number one today, Bridge Wallet. I'm just going to say, you've heard me talk about the Ridge Wallet for almost three years now, and there's a reason. I flippin' love the Ridge Wallet. I will never, ever, ever, never, repeat never, ever, infinity, go back to a big giant billfold on the back of my ass, throwing my posture off when I'm driving in my car, that makes me take it out and put it in my little cubby hole, and then forget that it's there, and then go in the store, and then buy shit, and not have any money, and be like, oh, I love my wallet! I will never do that again, and I will never worry about anybody wanting my ass with an $8 part off eBay and stealing my identity from all those little RFID chips they put in all the damn cards and IDs and everything else now. Because I have the Ridge Wallet, and you should too. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. Remember, MSB members, you get a discount. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. I have read Backwoods Home Magazine since 1993. That's how old I am. I've been reading the damn thing about as long as it's been around. I think it launched in 86 or 89. Now, I wasn't reading it then, but yeah, I've been reading it since 93. And uh, that makes it really easy to suggest that maybe you'd want to read it, too. I mean, I think that I have a longer-term relationship with Backwoods Home Magazine than I do with my wife. I met my wife in 96. That's saying something. Check them out today. It is a great information source. You're going to love reading it. It's a quarterly magazine. It's almost like a small book, every edition that comes to your house. I think they made a decision. With, with as hard as it is to be in the magazine business in 2020, think about that that it made sense to make bigger editions and go with four a year than smaller editions and go with 12 or six a year. I just think it's more cost-effective, makes more sense. Every edition you get, you'll read it from front to back if you give it a shot. Check it out today, backwoodshome.com. And with that, let's jump into today's show. I got a uh, quote of the day for you. It was part of the uh, article that I wrote last week offering uh, a challenge out to debate any doctor, scientist, what have you, on the merits of hydroxychloroquine for the treatment of COVID and the prevention of the same. Uh, we'll get to it later, but I have yet to have a single person take me up on that. And I even said, if you think I'm too much of a hick to, to, to debate you, I will facilitate a debate and get somebody that you think is qualified to debate you. And a PhD and MD, both, you tell me what you want. Nobody's taken me up on that challenge. But in that article, I put this graphic with this quote on it. And I decided I would run it as today's quote of the day as well. It's by Richard Feynman. He said, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And I think that when you get into, like, you get into a time in, in history where it's not okay to ask questions and demand intelligent answers to them, where you, 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 you can't just accept, hey, listen, we said so, so you believe it. No, 
No, here's all my objections, and I want you to explain to me why I'm wrong. And that results in anger and squashing of opinion and silencing and censorship. You've reached a dangerous time in history. And that's why I know some of you are, because I do hear from some of you, like, new topic, please. This is a line in the sand. This shit that's going on with the censorship of doctors and scientists, leading epidemiologist from Yale, one of the most respected men in infectious disease in the world, being ignored, saying, hey, you've got this wrong. This is a place if we don't do something now, If you don't do something now, if you don't stand up and be heard now, it's over. This is a, this is the last last hoorah for the truth. And I know you think I might be being a little bit overly dramatic here, but I'm telling you, when 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 people are permitted to lie this blatantly in public and go unchallenged, once that happens, there is no stopping them. They've been lying to you since you were born. Just so you know, I don't care if you're 8 or 80, they've been lying to you since you were born. But I've never seen it so public, so dishonest, and so obvious all at the same time. And if, if they don't get checked here, your children won't know the difference between blue and orange. So I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. Uh, let's go and, and start off with something a little bit uplifting. There's a new study out of Princeton, and uh, it claims that the happiest people in the world pretty much are gardeners. And if you want to solve most of society's ills, get people to garden. And I wanted to just, and I've got a link to it, you can read a little article on it, and that links to the full study, and you can read more if you want to. But I just wanted to kind of juxtapose that with, with Jeff Lawton's often quoted statement of, you can solve all the world's problems in a garden. When people hear that, they see it as very fanciful. And, and I've explained before different ways of looking at it to where you can understand what the man's actually saying about solving the world's problems in a garden. He's not claiming that if you plant a garden, the world's problems will go away. But maybe a lot of the world's problems that affect you will stop affecting you, either directly or indirectly, either because, one, you'll worry less and you'll have more, so that will solve some of your own problems. But if you if you mentally then shut off the things that you cannot control, that you have no say in, and you only focus on the things that you can control, it will solve a lot of the problems of the world for you. Because a lot of problems people think they have, they don't even have. There's somebody else's problem, and they sit around worrying about them. That's one way to look at it. I have another way of looking at it, though, and as soon as I saw this study, it was the first thing that entered my mind uh, in relation to Jeff Lawton's quote. Again, you can solve all the world's problems in a garden. The person that gardens is doing something that a lot of people don't do anymore. They're thinking about tomorrow. They're thinking about next week. They're thinking about next month. They're thinking about the next season. And they're thinking about next season. You see the difference between the next season and next season? So what I mean is the gardener is always thinking as they're going through their seasons spring, summer, fall, winter, that whenever their big startup is. For us down here in the south, it, it, it's mid to late winter. Um, that's when it's best. For, for a lot of y'all further north, you know, you guys are planting in early to mid-spring, your big plant. And all through the gardening season, we're thinking, like right now it's summer, we're thinking of fall in Texas and what fall gardens are like. When I grew a garden in, in Pennsylvania for my grandfather as a kid, 
and I love to hunt and fish. I wasn't even really thinking about the fall for gardening because we really didn't do that. We just kind of let stuff grow until it froze. We didn't really do winter gardening at my grandparents' place. And it was, see, about September, what was was. And we stopped weeding. We stopped doing everything. All we did from, like, September on was harvest because September's when the doves started flying and dove season started and dove season led to deer archery season and for deer and it led to small game season which eventually led to bear season which led to fall turkey season and duck and goose season and that led to rifle season and if you still had a tag you could fill out that led to second season archery and, and winter deer season uh, you know maybe doe second doe season or something like that and that led into trapping and fur bearing in the winter but so you were always thinking about where we're going next but you were always also thinking this is all the stuff I learned this year So next spring, I'm going to do these five things differently. I'm going to plant more of this plant, less of that plant. I'm going to get this plant in earlier, put this plant in later. I'm going to do a better job of my cover crop. Like you were always thinking about that next startup. Well, people that are thinking about tomorrow generally are people that are happier and more productive and more proactive and more concerned about a better tomorrow than people who are not thinking about tomorrow. And when I take that bigger than just what we think of with a garden, flowers, vegetables, annual plants, to perennials and trees, I, I would almost come up with a new quote that is that people that garden think about tomorrow and, and people that plant trees think about the next generation. And I think in either instance, as soon as you start thinking about things that you leave behind, things that happen after today, things in the future, it can't help but improve your mood because you realize you have taken control of something that you actually control. And so I agree with Jeff in so many different ways. And I think this is one of the, this is one of the great of greatest quotes of all time. It's up there. I don't know if it's a top 10. There's some pretty great quotes in the world. This is like a top 100 quote of anything that anybody ever said. And the reason is you can come at it from so many different ways. We can, how many times have we examined that quote now? And learn something new from it. It is it's truly exceptional when a person makes a single sentence quotable statement that can be re-examined over time and continue to teach. So that's why I've always loved that. Next up, I want to talk a little bit about D3. And I'm getting some questions that are scaring me. Okay? It's scaring me that you're not listening to me and you're not understanding me. Because I don't ever want anybody to just go out and do something that involves putting something in your body because Jack Spirico said something. And I've learned that sometimes I think I've explained myself perfectly well. I feel like I've explained myself five times in a row. I think I've said the same sentence three times straight, the exact same way, over just so I won't be misunderstood. And then I'll hear from some, something from somebody and go, that's not what I said. And I'm worried that that could happen here. And I, I do not want it to. Okay? So I'm getting questions like, well, how, you know, if you take a lot of D3, Jack, do you take it once a day or do you take it multiple times a day? See, my problem with that question isn't the question of itself. It, it makes me feel like what you're going to do is just start taking X IUs of vitamin D because I said so, and you just want to know how frequently to do it during the day instead of doing what I actually said to do. So what I actually said to do is at least as a bare minimum, as your first step, get and read the book by Dr. Somerville called The Optimal Dose. I have a link in the show notes today. If you have Kindle Unlimited, it is free on Kindle Unlimited. I think the hard copy book's like eight or nine bucks. 
Don't go making life decisions that are this big without reading and understanding why you're doing something that's completely the opposite of what the mainstream tells you to do. I think you'll come down on that side of it, but I want you to do it with some mitigation strategy, which is you do need to be talking to a doctor or healthcare advisor that's open to working with you on this. And you do need to get your blood tested. I'm going to tell you an overdose story here in a minute with a big boom in it, by the way, that seems unrelated to D. It's kind of cool in light of current times. But you can overdose on vitamin D. And what I've learned is vitamin D3 plus vitamin K2 results in mitigating that potential. I've also learned something else. It's like I didn't even know when I first started talking about this. Is what I said. You've got to do your own research. Contrary to what Forbes says, you must do your own research and you must be thorough. So there are two types of K2. There's MK4 and MK7 K2 vitamin. Some people seem to have their heart rate speed up from time to time on the MK4 version, but not the MK4, the MK7, but not the MK4. Okay? MK4 does not seem to speed up the heart rate. MK7 does. I learned this in a different book. The guy that wrote this book is not a doctor, but he seems on the ball about this. And so we've already noticed that as my wife started up in her D3, that she seems to have had some racing heartbeat moments. And that's kind of scary. So we're going to switch over, reduce, and slowly work back up using a K2 that's an MK4. You have to be careful when you do these things. And so I'm not advising anybody specifically to do anything, right? I'm not advising, like the government says you should never exceed more than 4,000 IUs of D3 per day, period. I'm going to tell you that for many people that will not move the needle on their blood level at all. I'm going to tell you for some people, 10,000 units will not move the needle on their blood level at all. If you, they'll do it for, for, for six months, supposedly overdosing, and you'll test their blood level, And it will have moved five nanograms per milliliter. And it needs to go 40 to be normal or optimum. But I'm also telling you that this changes. Because D3 stores in our fat cells. We talked about that recently. So if you're a big fat ass, it's going to take more to move the needle. And as you lose weight, it's going to take less. That's just one example. So you need to be, if you're going to be exceeding recommended dosage of vitamin D3, and I'm not going to tell you what I take. I am going to tell you if you read the book, I'm, I'm doing what he says. Because that way I know if you, if, you read the, if you get the number, you'll have read at least half the because you're like halfway through the book before he tells you. But you've got to have all this other stuff with it, okay? And you've got to be careful, and you got like don't just throw a switch on something. Do it a little bit, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, until you make sure it's not jacking shit up for you. Okay? I am going to try to get Dr. Somerville on the show. I've also reached out to another doctor that's big on D3. It's a lot more conservative about it that I just found on Joe Rogan's show. I'm going to try to get some people on about it to tell you more. I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be one on TV or the podcast. Please be careful with anything that I suggest you look into. I'm suggesting you look into it. You make informed decisions, not that you do it. Because you might look into it and say, this doesn't work for me because. And with vitamin D, if you're not testing your blood levels, you do not know where you're starting and you do not know where you're going to. Okay? 
You can get your vitamin D levels tested. There's, there's one test you can get online. They send you a thing in the mail. You stick your finger like a diabetic does. You put a few drops of blood. You send it in. They send it back to you. You get your D3 levels. It's like 60 to 66 bucks, something like that. There's another one where you can order it online. They give you locations you can go to. You make an appointment, usually LabCorp. Usually there's one within five minutes of your house. You go to LabCorp. If you've made an appointment and you've already prepaid and everything online, you walk in and you, you, your butt will not hit the weight, the chair in the waiting room before they're telling you to come back. They'll do a quick blood draw. You're on about your business. 44 bucks. One way or another, do not jack around with something like D3 at elevated amounts without running blood tests frequently. And get informed before you do it. Don't just go to, well, Jackson, he's thinking, like, I figured out what Jack's doing, so I'm going to do that too, because Jackson is, don't do that shit. That's my body, not yours. Please. All right, next up, on D3, I've got a link to the story you can read for yourself, but there's a man that I read a story on that had an overdose of vitamin D3. They said he was taking about 12,000 IUs a day, and it led him to overdose and calcify his kidneys and some other things. I find this to be unlikely. In the story, he was using drops. I'm going to tell you, do not use drops of something that you're using elevated amounts of that have any potential for overdose. Because is one drop the same as the other drop? And how many drops did you really take? And were you taking D3 and some other supplement that you didn't factor? I mean, there's no way to know. Was this guy taking K2? Was this guy taking magnesium? I don't know. Did he have other problems? Was he? I guarantee you wasn't testing his blood levels because he was at like 380 nanoliters, nan, nanograms to the milliliter. That's talk. That is toxic. The government says a hundred is. I don't think so. I think the numbers around three hundred because that's what the scientists that did the research said before they divided by three to create a safety margin. But you probably shouldn't even be in the two hundreds. Doctor Somerville says it's somewhere in the neighborhood of one hundred to one hundred and twenty nanograms to the milliliter. Right. So if he had been doing that, he would have been. It's like if he, if he did the things I said, this shit wouldn't have happened. But the boom in the story, and I have a link where you can read it for yourself, I think you'll find this interesting. He ended up with permanent kidney damage, but what they did that basically saved his life is they treated him with a medication. Do you want to get, like, I wish I had Jeopardy music, like a Jeopardy music you know, uh, button that I could hit when I'm doing this and play it in the background. You want to guess what that medication was? What was the medication the doctors gave this man to help his body uh, move all that calcium out of his kidneys because he overdosed on D. Hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine. I'm not making it up. I wouldn't make it up. Go take a look at it um, and read it for yourself. Now, this is what the irony of why I point this out. If you said to a doctor, can you show me a randomized control study, randomized control trial, that shows that hydroxychloroquine will treat this condition, they would tell you you're flipping stupid. And they would tell you the reason you're flipping stupid is people doing this is so rare that no one's ever done a study on something like that. And you'd say, well, then then what the hell are you using it that way for? And they would say, well, we're using it off-label as a prescription medication because we understand the action of the drug and by understanding the action of the drug and the problem that we have, we know that it'll probably work here, and we're monitoring it to see if it works. If I have to explain the irony to you there, you are proof that government schools work. I'm just saying. Um, as of yet, on my challenge, I have put out an open challenge to debate any doctor, any scientist, anywhere, anytime, at a significant disadvantage on my part, 
about one, hydroxychloroquine is a safe medication when used at the dosages that we should be using it for COVID treatment and prevention. And two, when used at the right stage with the right supporting therapy, i.e. zinc, it is proven effective against COVID. And actually, what I would say is both of them are preventions of COVID. That I don't, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. I think it would, if you actually understand what I'm saying, it'll make sense. If not, I'm going to explain it. It would be accurate to say that hydroxychloroquine probably doesn't cure COVID-19. Because not everybody that is infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus develops COVID-19. COVID-19 is the illness. And it's the illness that, you know, you have lung problems, you have breathing problems. That's COVID-19. COVID-19 is not the virus. The virus is SARS-CoV-2. So you get the virus, there's a time that the virus is in your body, and your immunity either stops it or it doesn't. Then it progresses to a more advanced stage of the illness, we call COVID-19, where you're either bad enough to be in a hospital or not, and then you either get through it or you don't. That's how it works. And I don't actually think hydroxychloroquine will probably work very well for a person who progresses to the point where you would describe the illness as COVID-19. The serious progression of the illness. When it works is when the virus first manifests with very mild symptoms or the person is tested because of exposure to somebody that had it and it's given with zinc early, and it takes someone infected with SARS-CoV-2 and prevents them from developing COVID-19. Interesting. Why won't, why can't we have this debate? I don't know, but nobody wants to debate me. And, and remember what I said last week when I announced this. Remember what I said. I said, if you don't think you're, that it's, it's right, for someone who's a professional such as yourself, assuming you're a professional willing to take this on, to debate a podcaster who doesn't have a degree, doesn't have any credentials, step up. Tell me you feel that way. Tell me otherwise you would debate, and I will go get you an MD or a PhD and no studies. Nobody has stepped up, not one person. I've also thrown out elsewhere challenges. Okay, if you don't want to debate me, here's my points of contention. Come on the show as a guest. I'll work you in instead of make you wait two months like anybody else would have to. And I'll let you explain to me where I'm wrong to 250,000 people. Some total of people who have done that, zero. Zero people willing to debate or explain. When challenged, because I, I will challenge you with the facts, I'll be respectful, but I'm going to challenge you with the facts. Nobody will step up and do it. What that tells you is you have two possible explanations. One, they know they're wrong and they don't care because they're corrupt. Or two... They're professionals with so much faith in their vaulted system, they don't care to even go look at what people like me are saying. Because I honestly believe that anybody smart enough to be a doctor or a true scientist who actually reviewed the data that I've put out would come to the conclusion that Jack Spirico has a point. Maybe he's not right, but he has a point. And I think most of them, they're not lying. They're not corrupt. They're just lazy. They have so much faith in the concept that, hey, if, if, if the studies say, they don't care to read the study. Because I'm telling you, I've had doctors right now tell me, well, the latest study. I'm like, well, okay, 
Let me ask you a question. What was the dosages given in that study for how long? They don't have an answer. Well, I don't know. Then how do you? How are you telling me this? This study proves anything if you don't even know the dosage or duration? What was the? What, they were given standard of care treatment. What is that? What what treatment was? What is what is the hypothesis? Here's my thing. So this is this is the reality. This is as simple as I can make it. You learn about the concept of a hypothesis in like fifth, sixth grade when they teach you scientific method in school, right? Do you remember that? Remember what brain cell that's in? Maybe you tried to kill it with booze over the years or whatever, falling off of things or whatever, bumping your head. But you cut hypothesis. Yeah, there it is. So the hypothesis is, and this is this is what doctors have proposed. This is what people who actually treat patients that say it works have proposed. We give the medication at the first sign of the illness, along with zinc. We give it in a specific dose, 400 the first day, 200 for four days, full stop, no more is needed. We're done. We keep giving the supplemental zinc, the patient clears and goes on about their way. That's the hypothesis. I'm not saying it's 100%. Validated. In fact, I'm saying it's not validated. I'm saying that's the hypothesis. Now, millions of dollars have been spent on studies. Not a single of single one of them have actually tested the proposed hypothesis. The reason that the doctor can look you in the eye and say there are no studies that prove this is there's not been any done that test the actual hypothesis. Not one. You have to ask yourself why. And the only answer I can come up with is they don't want to test that hypothesis, so they've come up with a new one. The hypothesis is that we give extremely high doses of hydroxychloroquine to people with advanced stage of the illness. Will it cure COVID, yes or no? That's not even a hypothesis. They don't even think it will. They, they are choosing to do the, I'm going to drop it. I'm just going to say there's a reason that no one will debate me. Or come on the show and talk about this. Because why wouldn't you, even if you don't want to do the debate, why wouldn't you Why wouldn't you come on the show? quarter million people are going to listen to you. Explain to me why I'm wrong. You're a smart guy. You're a doctor. You're, why wouldn't you? I guess because you can't. Uh, next up, I just want to say real quick, a lot of y'all are throwing around, like throwing your ass in the air with it, the 2005 study that, that would read the title something like hydroxychloroquine is a potent inhibitor of the SARS virus, right? SARS coronavirus which was the original SARS coronavirus. That is a very useful study. It very much shows the antiviral action of hydroxychloroquine against coronaviruses. It is good evidence that hydroxychloroquine has an effect on the SARS coronavirus. Okay. It is not the smoking gun you're making it out to be. Let me kill that smoking gun so you'll stop doing it because you think you're helping, but you're not. Number one, it is being contended that it was Anthony Fauci's organization that did this. Okay, Anthony Fauci had nothing, nothing at all to do with this study. Didn't sign off on it, didn't organize, it has nothing to do with it. Now, the study was published by NIH, okay, and Fauci is now and at the time was the director of NIH. But it's not like every study that gets published by NIH goes to the director's desk. That's not how that works. It was actually a group of Canadian scientists, and the Canadians have done so much more with this than we have, by the way, that published that. And they just published it through NIH. They submitted it, and it was, it was published. That's it. Number two, that study 
took hydroxychloroquine in a petri dish with human cells and used it in the cells and then infected the cells with the SARS virus. That is good evidence, but it does not prove that a person taking it will have the same results. Right? There's that. And then I still think it's incredibly valid because a coronavirus is a coronavirus and they all have certain similarities and they're going to respond similar to most things. And it probably is good evidence that hydroxychloroquine treats COVID-SARS-2 or SARS-CoV-2. But the research wasn't done with the current coronavirus. It was done with the one from the early 2000s. So it's good evidence. It's good to look at. It is good credit. It is good starting point for the use of hydroxychloroquine. It is not a smoking gun, and Anthony Fauci had nothing to do with it. And every time you claim that he did, you hurt this side of the debate. I just wanted you to know that. All right. So next up, I want to give you a flashback. You know, flash dance, right? This is flash flashback. Jack flashback. In 2014. I think that was the first time. Somebody just pointed this out to me on YouTube, and I looked it up and went, holy shit, i got to do something with this. In 2014, I forecasted the following. In the next election, a Republican strongman would rise up and win election in 2016. I said that in 2014, before the midterms. It was actually the July of 2014 that I said this, the first time. I may have said it earlier, but this listener said, I've listened to every episode, and some people have, and this is the first time I, I can... Point out that you said it. So I went and looked it up, and it was right. It was like 40 minutes into the episode. It was right where he said it would be. And so today I broke out about five minutes of it, and I made a video with some picture slides so that you can share it with people. What I want to do for you though is I want to play it now. And again, I want to set the stage. This is July 2014. As to running for president, other than you know, there's always been little you know, Trump might run for president. Somebody. No one had seriously contended that Donald Trump would run for president in 2016. No one. No one. And I wasn't thinking specifically of Trump when I said this. But this is 2014, and I was talking about how some people think we're all going to get rounded up and put in a FEMA camps. That was, that was going on again. Because the midterms were coming up, and Pelosi and her ilk were going to put us all in FEMA camps if they won. That was, this was a, miscon a show on misconceptions versus reality. And um, so I was talking about that and how that's not... So when, when this answer comes in, that's where I'm at. That that's not how they control you. That they control you through the dichotomy and the false belief that you're in control of something. So with that in mind, let's, let's rewind, right, all the way back to uh, July 2014 for just five minutes, and I'll be right back. Because the, the direction had already been chosen for how you're going to control the planet, right? It's not that there's no global control of the planet. It's not that there's not a desire to control every individual. It's that... How that's to be done is based a lot more on psychology than brute strength. Now, here's the problem with this, what everybody in camps think. If you do that, who's going to pay the taxes? If you do that, who's going to pay the taxes? Who's, how are you going to feed all these people you're going to put in a camp? If, 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 you, if, you, if you round up all the right-wingers and put them in a camp... How are you going to run your dichotomy anymore? Who are you going to blame when stuff doesn't go right? If you, if you eliminate the supposed opposition. Well, you'll have nobody to blame. All the people will turn around and blame you. Now, we can read history, and we've learned what happens, and no matter how strong tyrants are, 
When they run out of excuses, their heads come off because there's always more people than there are tyrants. Got it? And no matter how much power they have, they have to use a psychological means of control. And a psychological means of control has to have a dichotomy built into it. The human mind has a very difficult time processing more than two variables in anger. I want you to think about that. When it's angry, it wants to determine who, who's trying to fix it and who's trying to blame, and blame who's, who caused it. That's it. It doesn't have time for anything else. Now, I know you're saying, well, I do. Well, you probably do because you're a thinking being that's risen above your basal level. And you've said to yourself, I want to understand this stuff. And you've started to ask questions and you've started to, to look deeper. But the average idiot doesn't do that. Someone must be to blame. You see it over and over again. Who's the blame? Democrats. Who's the blame? Republicans. Who's the blame? Obama did it. Well, the guy before him did all the same shit. Yeah, but this guy's worse. Okay. Well, it's the same shit. Yeah, but this guy's worse. Okay, we're done with the conversation now. You need this dynamic in place. You can't eliminate the opposition in the modern world. There's too much information out. There's too much information and disinformation. The little guy can be just the propagandist that the big guy is now. They've adapted to this. They understand this. They don't want you at FEMA camps because you're far more useful to them turning the gerbil wheel, generating your one megawatt of sparks out of it during your lifetime, so they can harness you like what you are, the battery that's in the matrix. The reason you're not going to a camp is there's no benefit to them for you to go in a camp. Well, we're resistors. You're not resisting anything. You're not a resistor. You're a freaking capacitor. Most of the people that believe this one, they think they're the resistance, right? They're not resisting anything. You're feeding the system. You're feeding the system with your energy. You're feeding the system with your internet memes. You're feeding your system with the Obama, Obama, Obama bullshit. I mean, I don't like the guy at all. I think they're all criminals. I'm not going to say, well, it's, it's him. It's him. It's him. Because I know what's coming. Let me tell you what's coming. Here's another Jack's prediction. The next president of the United States is going to be a strong man. Big time strong man. Tough on this. Tough on that. Tough on this. Willing to do things and get things done and stamp on the throats of the people that are wrong. Eight years. Eight years of this guy. is designed... To get the American people to crave a guy they would have never accepted at any other time in history. They're, you're going to see a guy far more like Vladimir Putin is our next president than you would have ever believed 25 years ago. You want to bet? I don't know who it'll be, but that will be the persona you're going to get. The American people are about to scream out and beg for tyranny. They're going to call for it. They'll cheer it when it gets here. And you want me to believe that they're going to enforce it upon us with a FEMA camp in the dark of night when we ourselves will beg for what they're going to give you. See, like I said, the reality is far more serious than the fictitious component. So kind of what I wanted to, to point out with this is a lot of times I say that I'm pretty sure something's going to happen. And, and I have a track record, I'd, I'd say about nine times out of ten of that happening. Sometimes I'm so accurate that when it starts to happen, I start to doubt myself. And there was a point in 
the election cycle, the 2016 election cycle, that I actually started saying I thought I Scott, thought Scott Walker was going to be our next uh, president, that he would be the strong man. It didn't make any sense for me to say that. And what, it was one of those things like, as you're saying it, you realize how stupid you sound, but you can't stop yourself. Because I was thinking at the same time, I mean, he's broken up some unions and stuff, but Scott Walker's not a strong man. Trump is the strong man. He's leading the polls. He's a guy. I couldn't accept. I could not accept that the orange man was about to be our president. I knew it. I said it before I knew who he was. He's exactly the... And if you remember, if you listened that long ago, this wasn't a one-time thing. I came back with this over and over and over about the characteristics of a strong man. He'll be tough on this and tough on that and tough on... And think of every position. I'm tough on this. I'm tough on that. I support law. Like, he is the guy. The reason I'm bringing this up right now, it's, this is not me stomping, uh, spiking a football and saying, look, I told you so. I'm, I'm, I'm predicting something else right now. People think I'm crazy. I just put out a video last week on it. I sent it out in the Daily Mail. The Democrats are going to lose the 2020 election, and they're doing it on purpose. They don't want to be holding the hot potato. Joe, uh, um, uh, Joe Biden is a surrender candidate. Joe Biden is a John McCain. When the Republicans put up McCain against Obama, the Republicans were signaling, we don't really want to win. And people have been asking me, because my, my other side of that, in that video, I said, they're going to do this. 2022, they're probably going to have a major takeover in the midterms. Major. And in 2024, you're going to probably have Democrats in control of the Senate, the House, and the presidency. And you're going to get full-on socialism. And people have been asking me, well, why? Not The people asking me why kind of are saying, okay, I'm, I'm buying the whole Trump winning re-election thing. You made a good case for that. But why would Trump being president for another four years swing the pendulum that far to the left? What's going to happen? No, here's the two things that are going to happen. Number one, Trump is not a Republican. Trump is not a conservative. Trump has done more to take away gun rights in three and a half years than Obama did in eight. And yet he's still being supported by people that think he's pro-gun. But he is not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not a conservative. He's not a liberal. And again, whenever I speak of politicians, I'm going into their world, so I use the language you're familiar with. I think they're all criminals. And I think every politician's for big government, or they wouldn't be a politician. But the most accurate description of, of like mainstream terms for what Trump is, Trump is a populist. Trump is a populist. He's a, they're all statist. He's a statist in the form of a populist. He wants to be loved. He wants to be liked. It's very important to him that he be loved and liked, at least by more people than don't like him. That's why he's always bragging about himself. That's why he's always saying shit that even when you, if you're a supporter, you're like, ah, why, why, why would you do that? Because he has an inferiority complex. He's actually an incredibly smart man. I know some of you are going to be pissed because I say that. I call it like it is. I don't want him as president. I don't want Biden as president. I didn't want Obama. I didn't want Bush. I don't want any of them. But I'm just telling you, as a person, the man is incredibly intelligent. He looks like a dumbass. But he's not. He's incredibly smart. His IQ is high. He's a conniving son of a bitch at business. He's a very good businessman. He went bankrupt. So do all good business people. They know when to go bankrupt. 
They know when to go bankrupt. They don't mind going bankrupt. They wrote the effing law. The business people wrote the bankruptcy law for them, not for you. It's so they can use it whenever they want to. Who pays taxes? I don't give a shit what he paid in taxes. I congratulate anybody that doesn't pay their taxes. You're not understanding me. The man is more intelligent than he's given credit for, but he looks like a bumbling dumbass at times because he has such an inferiority complex. And he's now taken a position that makes him the subject of constant ridicule and attack, which any president would have. So this is this is all just a conglomeration of bullshit going on in front of you right now. You got a guy that came out of left field, like I said he would, he became the president. How is this gonna lead to the swing to the left? Here's how it leads to the swing to the left. Number one, because he's not what you think he is, as soon as he's reelected, he's going to re and as soon as he's reelected, and Democrats have no reason to attack him anymore. Because he's 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 a he's a lame duck. Got four years and he's out. They're not going to impeach him again. They know that. They'll work with him. All the collaboration that they could have had up till now, they will do because, hey, and that way they have all kinds of things to put on their resume when they go into the next election cycle. So he's going to sell you out to the Democrats on everything he's willing to sell you out to. And if you don't know what that is yet, I don't. you're not paying attention. So that's one. So that's going to sully the, the base The other side of it is we're about to have the biggest economic recession, possibly uh, depression, of, of living history. And Democrats don't want to own it. They want it to be Trump's depression recession. And this is going to be after COVID's taken care of. And all the damage that was done here comes to fruition. They know this. Why do you think in late 2019, before the word COVID was public, there was the biggest mass exodus of CEOs of major corporations that the United States has ever seen. Why do you think that was the case? Do you think it was a coincidence? Anyway, it's coming. And, and, and just, you know, take a look at that video. You've already heard it, but take a look at it, and then take a look at the link in it that leads to my predictions for 2020 and see if it doesn't come into. All right. Um, one more thing I want to say about what's going on in the media right now with these the outright lies about hydroxychloroquine. All right, and I'm not going back into that subject as a thing. Trust me. All right. We're just, I want you to understand where you're dealing with here. And, and this is, again, this is a dangerous time in history, especially with all of these other things moving in the background. Let's ignore whether it works for COVID. Let's just put that on the shelf. It's dangerous. The claim that it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Dangerous. This is stupid. This is a stupid claim. It's demonstrably stupid. I had somebody on my, my article I did last week. They said, I'm sure, I guess you haven't looked into the side effect profile. I mean, it has retinal detachment and heart arrhythmia. So she was be giving it to all of those people? In a word, yes. Yes, we should be, like, the total number of people who should not take hydroxychloroquine as a group, as it, like, people that have this thing should not take hydroxychloroquine, according to the World Health Organization, is one group of people. People with psoriasis, full stop. Hydroxychloroquine, at the dosage that we're talking, does not cause any of these side effects at all, the end, infinity, when taking in the quantity of dosage necessary. Because again, it's one tablet every 14 days as a, as a prophylactic, or it's, it's six tablets in five days, full stop. And all of the places these side effects are coming from are studies with heavy long-term use. 
The doctors that, and the people that point out the side effects never tell you that. You know, they're like 10 years in people taking 800 milligrams a day or something stupid like that because of some serious thing, right? That there was no choice. It was the only thing they had that might help. But what I want to under, you to understand this is that you should realize that when the truth is feared and suppressed by those in power, what's, how dangerous that is. You should realize that when you've reached a point where the truth is feared, that you are dealing with people who are willing to be seen openly as pathological liars. You're dealing with pathological liars. They've, they've literally signaled to you, whether you want to accept it or not, that you can trust nothing that they say. And I know some of you are like, well, that's, that's old news to me, Jack. I, I, I could have told you that yesterday. Not all of you. And many of you, this is the thing that you have. You believe you can't trust them, except you have all your little places you pick and choose because it's comfortable to believe, but I can trust this, and I can trust that, and I can trust this other thing, and surely they don't lie all the time. When you're dealing with a pathological liar, you have to assume that everything that they say could be a lie and probably is. It doesn't mean that it is. It means you must start with the assumption that it's probably a lie. At least part of it's a lie. And even when it's the truth, it's not like it's not because it's of the, your benefit for them to tell you the truth. They only tell you the truth when it benefits them. That's how you know you're dealing with a pathological liar. They always lie except when it's of benefit to speak the truth. So you do not use that source to make decisions at all. And you go find your information from somewhere else. I've been teaching that for 12 years. I know some of you are like, so how is this any different? It's really not, but boy, if you've had any lingering doubts about it, if you've been clinging to the belief you can trust anything that comes from government or industry in this country, this should have destroyed it for you. Let's move on. Um, something else came out today on social media I thought was kind of cool. The, the, the concept of the sheepdog theory started going around again, and people are finally starting to wake up to the flaw in the sheepdog theory. Now, if you're very fond of law enforcement, you're probably not going to like some of the things I'm going to tell you right now. But I think for a lot of people in law enforcement and the military, a sheepdog analogy is a good analogy, if you actually understand what a sheepdog does. If you actually understand what a sheepdog does, and what a sheepdog serves, what the purpose of a sheepdog is. Sheepdogs do not protect sheep. Let me say that one more time. Sheepdogs do not protect the sheep. It's not their job to protect the sheep. Nope. The sheepdog's job results in some protection for the sheep, but it's not the sheepdog's dog job. To, here comes the coyote. The sheepdogs charge out and kill the coyote. That is not the sheepdog's dog job. And if you look at most breeds that we use for sheepdogs, they're not capable of that. A lot of the breeds we use for sheepdogs, if that sheepdog goes out after the coyote, the coyotes will kill it. It's not big enough. It's not strong. They're fast. They're agile and they're smart. How's that relate to, let's say, law enforcement? Well, if you understand what the sheepdog's job really is, it makes perfect sense. The do job, job of the sheepdog is to keep the sheep in the herd. See, the coyotes want to kind of come up on the edge using that edge cover and look for that sheep or that lamb that's kind of straight out. They want to grab it and disappear and be gone because they're a predator and they also know that they're prey. 
There's a lot of things in the world to kill coyotes, including ranchers. Coyotes know this. Coyotes are smart, too. So when you keep the sheep in a herd, and they don't stray and they don't spread out, they're less likely to be predated on. But that dog's job is to serve its master, the shepherd, by keeping the sheep in line. That dog's job is to move the sheep from one place to another. That dog does not look at those sheep and say, I am one of them, they are one of me. That dog sees the sheep as a problem to solve. I need them. That's, and if you watch a sheep dog work, it's what they do. They can move a whole shitload of sheep through one little gate when they're well trained, especially when they work in pairs. Amazing what they can do to move those sheep, keep them in a herd. That's what they do. That's what law enforcement does. And to a large degree, if it comes to it, it's what the military is going to do. Yes, they will take your guns. Yes, they will fire on you. Yes, they will round you up if they're told to do it. Most of them will. Stop believing they won't. There's no good reason for you to believe that they won't. And when they do it, they'll, be, they'll think they're doing the right thing. They'll think they're doing the right thing. Let's contrast this with what I feel people want the sheepdog to be, but the sheepdog isn't. And it does not fit the description of many in law enforcement, and it doesn't fit the description of many in the military. What you think you're talking about is a livestock guardian dog. Now, this is all, everything I'm giving you is factual on the dog side here. There's two ways that you have dogs interact with livestock. You have the sheep dog that herds the sheep and sees the sheep as a problem and serves the master. You have a livestock guardian dog that has bonded with the livestock and sees the livestock as its pack, as its brother. It's its lesser in the pack, but its pack member. And it doesn't see the shepherd or the farmer or the rancher as the master it sees you, the owner of the dogs, as the pack leader. And therefore, it is as devoted to you as it is to the lamb. And it's as devoted to the lamb as it is to you. And it's devoted to its, its partner. If you have two livestock guarding dogs, for instance, on a herd, they're, de they're dedicated to each other too. And when they see a threat, they'll first warn it. And if it does not heed the warning, they will kill it. Something like an Anatolian Shepherd or a Great Pyrenees will go out to a coyote and grab it by the head and crush its skull like, like you're crushing a tin can. Crunch. Dead. It'll piss on it and it'll go back to its herd and lay down under a tree in the shade and watch over it. If you think when you say something like, well, I'm a sheepdog, you know what? If you think that's what you're saying, you're probably not. You're probably not. The days of protecting and serving are so gone that most of the departments took that off the doors of the cars. The Supreme Court has said that law enforcement has no duty to protect you. But who is the livestock guardian dog in the world today? Who is what they meant when they first started that analogy about the sheepdog and didn't realize how accurate it really was? Who is the livestock guardian dog? They're the people that are situationally aware, some of them are cops. Some of them are soldiers. I just wish I could tell you they're the majority. They're not, especially now. But some are cops, some are soldiers, some are former cops, some are for former soldiers, and some have never served in any capacity. 
We're the people that are always paying attention when we walk through a parking lot, not just for our own safety, but for the safety of those around us who don't even know we were there. And we're the people, if we see somebody attacked, we will use whatever force is necessary to stop the attack. That's who the Livestock Guardian Dogs are. The Livestock Guardian Dog does not see you as a lesser. They don't see you as a problem to be solved. They see you as a pack member. And if somebody's attacking you and trying to hurt you, they will end it. They don't call for backup. They get strategic and they go fast and they end it. The older man in the church in Texas about a year ago when a guy walked in with a shotgun and shot two people that a half a second after that second shotgun blast ran off put a bullet in the bastard's head and dropped him to the ground, he was not a sheepdog. He was a livestock guardian dog. He didn't think. If you watch that footage, it's hard to watch, but if you watch it, he did not think. He acted based on knowledge. He didn't think, well, maybe I should... No. It was, the mind took a second to register what was really happening, and I've trained my whole life for this, and bang, and weapon back, and man down dead. That's what the Pyrenees does. That's what the Anatolian does. It's not what the sheepdog does. Next time you hear that term, just think of that. Are you, are you if you like, I support the troops and I support law enforcement. I don't support shit because first of all, I don't believe in saying things that don't mean anything. I love it. I support the troops. Well, how? Well, I just do. Well, what do you do? Do you like run an organization for veterans and, and make sure homeless veterans are fed? Because then I would say you support the troops. Well, no. Okay. Do you donate your time to like a veterans organization to help them find jobs? Because then I would say you support the troops. Well, no. Do you run some kind of an organization to make sure that our deployed troops are given supplies beyond what the military gives them so that they know somebody cares? Do you do that? Well, no. Then you don't support the troops. You run your mouth. You don't, you don't you run your mouth. You're not supporting the troops because you say you do it. And, man, it's so easy. Those people are always the ones that they also think that the troops or the military or law enforcement protects them. They protect, And they're the ones that love the, they love the sheepdog analogy. If that's you, I just want you to think about that. Are you a sheep in a herd? Or are you a fellow pack member of people that actually value your life? Because it's important you see it from both directions. And what you'll find, the reason this is actually important, the minute you see the distinction and you make the decision to see it that way, you're going to make the decision to act like what you are. A pack member instead of a herd member. Just something that came up today. Ah, uh, Next up, I got some humor for you. A beep. Cardinal bit me. Yep, a cardinal bit me. Little bitty cardinal. Little girl cardinal. Probably a young one. Probably only had been flying for a few weeks. So I have this aviary, and I haven't put birds in it because I got derailed on that plan with the whole COVID thing this year, and I'm probably going to get some birds soon for it because it's all ready to go now, thanks to my house sitter, Michael, while I was gone. And uh, But I was in there working uh, this weekend, and I left the door open because there was nothing in there to get out, and the ducks were busy elsewhere, so I knew the ducks wouldn't get into the pond in there. And... Uh, I, I was gone for like a couple hours, and I went back out to close it down for the night and all, and to do my rounds. And I look, and I see something fly, you know, in the back corner of it. I'm like, I think that's a bird. 
Because I'm like, if that's a grasshopper, that's a big grasshopper. And it was this little cardinal, and she was like, she was beat up pretty bad from smacking against the, the, the you know, the uh, the aviary wall over and over again. She had lost some feathers, and she was pretty upset. She was also spent on energy, so she's kind of like in the corner behind one of the the grow beds. So I just reached back there and grabbed her. Now I've rescued dozens of songbirds in my life, dozens, right? Probably over a hundred. I've never had a songbird bite me. I've picked up robins. I've picked up blue jays. I've picked up doves. I've picked up titmice. Um, I don't know that I've ever picked up a cardinal before, but I know if I do again, I'm going to use a little more caution. So I picked this bird up, and I just grabbed her, and I didn't really worry about it. And she immediately clamped down on my index finger. Now, it wasn't so painful that I had to let go, but I started to wonder if she was going to get through the skin, which was her intent. And she was biting, and she was biting kind of like where they bite hard, and then they bite hard as they can, and then they kind of wear out, and they stop a second, but they don't let go, and it still hurts. And then they bite again, like she was pulse biting. Like she did that four or five times, like a good two, three seconds, hard as it can, and then back off a little. And then hard again, and then back. And then eventually the little bird brain worked out. This giant thing has me. I'm biting it. I'm probably hurting it, but it's not reacting to what I'm doing. Maybe I should stop before it crushes me since it hasn't crushed me yet. So it let go of me, but she was still pissed and she was still trying. Now I'm like, I got her in a different way of holding her where she can't get to my fingers. And she was trying to, little ungrateful little thing, trying to bite me again. Um, I was going to take her and have Dorothy take a picture of her to go along with the story before I let her go. I even thought about letting her bite me again. Because <laughs> it, it hurt, but it didn't hurt that bad. And then I, got, I thought better, like, you know, she might get through the skin. I mean, these things break seeds and little nuts and stuff for a living. And she looks so sad. So I let her go, and she flew up in a tree and bitched at me. Ungrateful little critter, but hey, I saved her. She's good to go. And just know, if you ever see a wounded cardinal, uh, you can pick it up. Think about how you do it, though, because they'll bite, and it hurts more than you'd think. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Their beak, is, the cardinal's beak, is very much like, like a parakeet's beak shape. It's not got the hook, but it's kind of that same shape. And a lot of other songbirds don't have beaks like that. And when I think about it, like, Titmice do, but they're much smaller. So maybe that's because I've picked up quite a few. I used to have, I had a door in Arkansas, and we had a ton of titmice there. They look kind of like a small female cardinal, is what they look like. You've never seen one. And they hit that door until we put some stuff on it where they'd see it all the time. And I picked up tons of them there, and none of them ever tried to bite me. Robins, again, doves, whatever. But man, a, a cardinal will bite, just so you know. Uh, next up, uh, you can watch the video on this. It's about 10 minutes long, but I made a cool modification to my smaller Miyagi pond. Uh, these are the air stacks I came up with a couple years ago when I built the big 12-foot Miyagi pond. For those that are not familiar with the term Miyagi pond, it's a, it's a timber frame pond. I use 4x4s, structural wood screws, and I basically build like a log cabin structure through a pond liner in it. You can look at my videos to learn more if you, if you want to know more. Um, but I came up with this concept of an air stack, which is simply you take a pipe that goes down in the vertical column of the water with some slits in it, and then you blow water into it with your air pump, with your water pump. And unlike a typical like waterfall or air, you know, like a, like a, a wand, a water wand, a uh, spray bar, it doesn't just go in the water. What happens? It goes in the water, and it can, gets compressed by the pipe, and it comes out the slit, and it makes the bubbles more fine, and it gets better. D dissolving of the of the air into the water. 
So I built some, and I but took like four-inch pipes, and I put them in uh, uh, like half five-gallon buckets I cut in half, and I cemented them, and then that way they would sink, and they would hold the pipe all nice, and I put them in the big one. And I was redoing my my eight eight by eight. The big one's a twelve by twelve. It's almost forty eight hundred gallons of water. The smaller one's holding more like seventeen hundred gallons. And I was redoing it, and I already had the distribution of the pipe. I had taken away some grow beds and stuff, and decided I'm going to go to these air columns, these air stacks. And I don't know what to call them other than air stacks. Uh, now I've never seen anybody else build one. I'm not saying I invented them, but I'm saying I invented them. And what I mean by that is I'm not saying I'm the first person ever did it. But I never saw anybody do it, and I came up with it on my own. So I was going to do that, and I was like, well, you know, maybe I can simplify this. So I had a square floating thing that I had wired so it stayed in the middle of it, and that way I could throw floating plants there, and they wouldn't get smashed by the water from the overflows. And since I was going to these stacks, that wasn't going to happen anymore, so I didn't need it. So I took it out and took it apart. It was just it was put together with friction. I didn't ever glue it. It's just four nineties and four pieces of two inch pipe, and they were a little bit short. So I took some straight collars that I had and I put it on there and I put an extender on them. And then about five inches down from the top, I cut one slit with a chop saw in them for the air to come out of. And I'm I wonder how this will work. So I took the. Um, the, the outlet nozzles, the four outlet nozzles, one in each corner of the pond, and I set the, the valves to about half closed. They would agitate the water, and I just put the pipe under them and let tension from the bottom of the pond, since the pond's only about 40 inches deep, so a 40-something-inch you know, pipe, and then the, the valve just holds it in place. It just kind of sits in there. You can watch the video. I turned it on, and it was like, holy crap is this amazing. If you watch the video, the air being produced the airflow out of that stack is amazing it looks like you're running an air pump it doesn't look like water being recirculated it looks like an air pump and it's basically a micro trombe feature and i actually think the smaller pipe smaller diameter pipe works better than the big diameter pipe because it's doing more compression of the air and forcing more of it out of the side of the stack Anyway, I just thought you'd like to see it. It's really cool. It's something you should give a try to. Uh, next up, uh, bantam chickens are coming to Nine Mile Farm. You're going to be like, but Jack, you have bantam chickens. No, I had bantam chickens. Now I have a bantam chicken. The lonely hen. The lonely hen. So we had four bantam chickens for a long time. Several years ago, my favorite one of the four was a speckled. She was a, a gold lace wide net um, Cochrane. And she had the so she had the gold lace wide net pattern, which is a really beautiful pattern. But she was a a a, 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 a Cochran or Cochin. I, there's two ways I guess to say it. But they're the ones with the feathery feet. And I got them because they were good brooders. Brooders. And she died when they were still living in the aviary with the quail. And then I had four little brown ones. The three little brown ones left. This summer, two of those brown ones died. One I think killed herself due to being stupid. Uh, and just getting herself in a bad situation for a chicken. And the other one, I think, died because she went so broody and she wouldn't give up in the heat and her eggs went bad and she wouldn't quit and I think she just wore herself out. So now we have one of the originals left. So I got some babies and we're raising some babies and I, they're straight run and there's like ten of them and hopefully um, some number of them will be hens because I only got one one rooster. And I just, just want to let you all know that. I got 
new chickens. I'm putting some videos out of them on YouTube. We have a video out on Instagram so far, but I'll be putting some more out. They're living in a little chicken tractor outside. They're being brooded 100% outside, and uh, they'll be cool. They'll be running around. You'll be able to check them out, and they'll be hanging out. And if you want to know why Bantams, um, my experience has been, since I went to Bantams, that they don't mess stuff up anywhere near as bad as full-size chickens. They don't scratch as much. They don't get up and into and onto things as much as, as full-size chickens. We used to keep full-size chickens when we first got here. They destroyed every garden bed. They destroyed – now, I have – my garden beds are 27 to 30 inches high, which helps a lot. But they certainly could get up there. They just don't. They don't rip the ends off my berms. They don't cause anywhere near the trouble. So that's And then the other thing I like about them is I don't know if you've ever eaten Bantam chicken eggs, but they're fantastic if you like over easy. And the reason is they're like a perfect size. Even though they're kind of small, you just eat more of them. They just are really easy to cook perfectly. Just throw that out there as well. Um, I also have a new idea for composting, and I'm kind of ripping it off of my buddy David, but it's being done a different way. And it, it's for composting and growing and being lazy all at the same time and using my pond weeds. So I've composted before where you take a piece of fence material, like you know, chicken fence, horse fence, whatever, and you make a circle out of it. And you kind of wire it together, and you set it on the ground, and you just fill it up with compostables. And then when it's full, you just throw a tarp over it, keep it wet, and wait for it to compost, and set up another one. It's a really easy way to go. Well, I started thinking, I saw my buddy David doing this in his backyard, and he's growing sweet potatoes in it. So he'll throw some dirt in the bottom of it, put some sweet potato slips in it, they start growing, he starts throwing his pond weeds, his compostables, and other little bits of existing compost, etc. in there, and keeps weaving them back and forth. And then at the end of the season, you lift it off, you take your potatoes, and you take your compost, and you put it wherever you want it. I'm like, well, I have these garden beds that are right next to a pond with all this floating vegetation that I'm already throwing in the garden beds to improve the soil. What if I just build the tower in the garden and then train the existing sweet potato into the tower and do the same layering thing, and at the end of the season you pull it off, you get your potatoes out, but then you just like spread out the compost. You don't have to move it, you don't have to turn it, you don't have to do anything. It's already there already. You're basically composting it in. So my beds are these big, they're 12 foot on the back side, 8 foot on the front side, and they're done in a right angle. Well, the, the corners have a pretty good open space. It's kind of hard to work your plants so they don't get planted as heavily. I could, and I'm probably going to do one this year in one bed because the year's almost over, just to trial it. But I'm thinking next year I'm going to do one in every corner. And then every year you're making, what, a quarter yard of compost probably? that you just spread out in both directions in your garden. It's almost like doing the worm tower thing in your bed, except you're going up instead of down, and that lets you you know, spread that compost out and basically mulch with it every year without turning, without moving, without shoveling. And if, you're, if you have water gardens and they're in close proximity, basically right now I have to take a couple, three pitchforks of weeds out of my pond every day. It takes a couple seconds. And I have to do that just to make a hole... This big enough to throw food to my fish. Because right now the whole thing's covered. If I throw food, it all sits on top of the, the, the weeds. So I have to do that every day anyway. So I'll just take the pitchfork, throw it in there, and keep weaving the 
stuff back and forth, and we can take the, the compostables from the kitchen and all that are currently going to the chickens. Some of those can start going there. And we'll take some of the compost we already have from the chickens. What I'm going to do, I'm going to take like a five-gallon bucket of compost. And what I'm going to do to kind of speed up the action is when I put the layer of weeds in the tower, grab a couple handfuls of compost and put it on top of the weeds. So you're introducing those, those positive biological organisms and things like that. And then that way you're getting a faster buildup as you're weaving because sweet potato vine grows fast. And so what we should end up with is a potato tower, composter, almost no work, compost maker spreader. Just another idea I thought I'd throw out. On, like, I've talked about how you learn things every year at the beginning of this episode. Like as a gardener, you're thinking about next year, tomorrow, etc. Like I'm going to grow more of this next year than I did this year. The plant that I'm going to grow a lot more of next year, by the way, I'm going to grow a lot less eggplant. I went a little overboard. I planted like eight eggplants. I have eggplant coming out of my ass this year. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I'm just throw some of it. Like it starts to get a little bit big or cracked or faded. I just pull it off, break it in pieces, and throw it on the garden bed and let the soil organisms feed on it. I mean, it's it's ridiculous how my my, my house that are. Uh, dehydrated a gallon bag full of it for me. We're eating it a couple times a week. I, I'm going to do less. But what I'm going to plant more of is a plant called Wazantle. And I've talked about it before, but man, this is a plant you really should be growing. Wazantle is, and it's pronounced, it's spelled H-U-A-U-Z-O-N-T-L-E. Um, it's a chinopodium species, which is the same family as Goosefoot, and lamb's quarters. It's actually considered a lamb's quarter, but it's not like the lamb's quarter you're probably thinking of. Another common name for it is red Aztec spinach. This is what it shares in common with lamb's quarters. If you look at the leaves, you're going to be like, oh, that's kind of like lamb's quarter. I mean, it's, is it lamb's quarter? I'm not sure. It looks a little like it's a little bit more narrow, but it's it, it looks like lamb's quarter. The structure of the plant, it's a little shorter and squatter and a little bit more spreading but it looks like lamb's quarters. It tastes like lamb's quarters that you salted when you eat the leaves. So when it's young, the leaves are really tender, they're really delicious, but they have a salty flavor. So imagine you took lamb's quarters and added a little bit of salt, and to me they are a little bit, they've got a little more substance to them. They're a little thicker, but I want to use it that way. Like lamb's quarters is like paper thin, and so if you don't mix it with something else, it's kind of like, uh, it tastes good, but it's not, It's like eating paper almost, in, in a not not a, that bad, but it's kind of like that. Like it's much better cooked or mixed in a salad with other greens, right? This has much more of kind of halfway between lamb's quarters and a good a good leaf lettuce, as far as substance to it. And again, that salty flavor. But where it really shines is when you let it keep growing. When it puts seeds on, instead of like all those like little side shoots with little bits of seeds on them. That, that the lamb's quarters you're familiar with puts on, it puts on bigger seeds. And while they're green and young, you cut the whole seed pot off and you use it like broccoli. It's, it's, it's very, very popular in Mexico. So, yeah, you use these seed heads kind of like broccoli. Again, it's real, real popular in Mexico. You also can um, batter them and fry them if you do that sort of thing, but they're delicious. They're kind of broccoli-like and they're even a little mint-like, but not strongly. Um, they have no pests. I mean, literally nothing. 
You might get some grasshoppers eating on them a little bit, but they grow fast enough and hardy enough. You just think they're lamb's quarters, but they have this other functionality. Now, if you let them go to produce the seed, the seed is, is, is a little bigger than what you think of from lamb's quarter seed, and it's nuttier, and I think it actually tastes better than quinoa. Um, you'd have to grow a lot of it, but it's also known as like spiny amaranth or something like that is another nickname for it. So it can be grown as a grain. It can be grown for the florets. It can be grown for the leaves. It has no pests. Um, it does not need a really long growing season. The longer the better uh, if you want you know, hard seed to save or to, uh, to use as a grain. But for greens and for the florets, I mean, you can grow it almost anywhere in the United States. It It's just this amazing plant. There's not a lot of places to sell seed for it, and you got to make sure you buy it from somebody that actually knows what the hell they're talking about when they say it's Fulzantle. Because some people will say it's what it is, and it's just um, red stem, a uh, red stem uh, or magenta spreen lamb's quarter, which is a great plant in its own right, but it doesn't get these 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 big flower heads on it. Um, or it's just lamb's quarters, which doesn't do either one. Um, our partner vendor in the MSB, Underwood Gardens, sells it. And even though it's Underwood Gardens, their website is terroirseeds.com. Um, I have a link in the show notes today where you can get it. It's If you're in the south, it's not too late to grow some this year. It really isn't. If you're in the north, you can grow it, but you're going to get a green, so you're not going to get the florets at this point in the north. But just something to look at. And I just want to say something. When I was thinking about gardening and all the day, I was thinking, you know what, there's, there's three mints that everybody should grow for teas and for other usage. And two of them are not thought of as mints, but they're all mints. One is peppermint, the other one is bee balm, and the third one is lemon balm. They, they the, Together they make a good tea, any two of them together make a good tea. Uh, lemon balm has a lot of utility. Lemon balm is a natural insect repellent. Peppermint is pepper. It, it, it's so, so useful in so many ways. Bee balm, in addition to its its character, that's amazing in tea. So another name for bee balm is wild bergamot. And the interesting thing is bergamot is what they use to make Earl Grey tea. Okay, so if you've ever tea Earl Grey hot, right? Hat and Picard's tea. Um, if you've ever had Earl Grey, it has this almost velvety texture to it. Like when you drink it. The finish has almost like a coating, like a velvety, in a good way, coating in your mouth. A mouthfeel that's, that's there's really not a lot of other things like it. Bee balm is another thing like it, while bergamot. So it, it does that in your teas, which is really, really cool. All three of them are easy to grow, hardy is all get out. Now, the actual bergamot comes from the oil of a citrus. It's kind of an orange that's not really used much for its flesh, but it's used for the oil that comes from the skin that they make this bergam oil of bergamot from. They're not the same. They're not even chemically the same, but they have that same character. So that's cool about uh, bee balm. The other thing, though, is bee balm gets these huge, beautiful flowers. It, they're just, it's just massive for bringing in you know, pollinators, beneficial wasps, all kinds of great stuff. Of course, all three of them can be invasive, so these are prime candidates for, you know, dedicated beds, wicking beds, uh, pots, whatever, but, you know, edges where you don't care if they run, um, depending on the climate that you're in. Like here, mint can do okay. 
I've found that uh, bee balm and lemon balm, unless they're in some sort of prepared, irrigated space, they don't survive. They don't get through this time of the year right now. Uh, the ground gets hard, the ground gets dry, and they, they, they can't make it. But any place that's irrigated, gets a little bit of shade, uh, it's cultivated a little bit, all three of them will just go crazy. And just going to throw that in. Like If you're thinking of like things to add to your garden that you still have time to do this year or into your gardening, those three are fantastic. And once you get them established, they all produce from cuttings really, really easily. Uh, next up, yes, right now we are going to do... TSP Workshop 2020. It is happening. It is a thing. We are not letting the COVID boogeyman shut us down. I do have a, a friend who is a deputy for the Sheriff's Department around here, and I'm going to talk to him and make sure there's nothing that we need to do to make sure that we don't get shut down because of a Karen that drives by complaining or something if this shit's still going on. Right now, we've been talking about doing it the same time of the year we always do, which is always the week of the second weekend in November. Some people seem to think it's the first week we usually do it. It depends on when the first Saturday lands. If the Saturday lands on the first, it's earlier than if the first Saturday lands on like the fifth or sixth. So we're thinking about that second weekend in November. That gives two weeks before Thanksgiving, and that's why we've always done that. What we think we might do this year, we just haven't decided on a date yet, we will make a decision this month. So that people want to come can you know get travel arrangements made and all, we're thinking about pushing it to the third weekend. So one week before Thanksgiving. I've never done that before because it makes it a little tougher for some people to travel. The reason I'm thinking about it is the election will be long over by then. And I expect some of this stupidity to actually wane when there's no real reason to do it anymore. If I'm right and Trump wins, it is what it is. He's president for four more years. If I'm wrong and Trump loses, it is what it is. He's not. Either way... Trying to score points around the election, positive or negative, is going to be a thing. And trust me, whatever's left of COVID or wherever it is, it will be playing into it. So it may just give us a little bit more buffer. I haven't decided yet, but here's what we actually need from y'all. What do you want to learn this year? Last year, I kind of did what we did the year before, which is we had a Friday where it was pretty much a party day, and I cooked a bunch of food on the porch and all, and... We did a lot of entrepreneurship, and we'll do some of that, but we're not going to do anywhere near as much as we've done in the past. Um, I want to do more skills. I'm going to probably definitely do a, a segment on, or a, a session on uh, hydroponics because we have so much you can look at here this year. We're definitely going to tour the food forest. So those two, th and, and we're going to do some stuff with the ponds. We're going to try to come up with a project. We've been thinking about like other things, though. What can we do that we've never done before? Um, I'm going to be talking to, some of y'all know who this guy is, Sonny Pazikas. Turns out he doesn't live very far from here. He's kind of a contemporary of Valery Azanov, uh, former soldier from the Soviet Union, Sistema, awesome in it, amazing with guns and movement. I don't know what, he, this is the kind of guy who usually does like a multi-day seminar thing, so this would be like a session or two, but I'm thinking about talking to him. I'm thinking about bringing somebody in to talk to you guys about cannabis, specifically CBD, Uh, we're thinking about maybe we did a soap workshop one year. We're talking about reaching out to those people and maybe doing that again, people being able to make their own soap. Um, which I, I want to know, though, what do you want? Those of you that are going to come, what do you want to do? Because I know that and people didn't want to tell me, but people always tell me, like other people tell me what other people said. There were some... Last year, people kind of felt like we're not doing enough of like modern survivalism and permaculture and stuff like that. Um, 
And I realized like we kind of fell into a groove that maybe wasn't the best groove to be in. And I want to give you all more stuff. And if we do a project, I don't want it to be all day long, one project. I want it to be more like it's a one or two hour project and then other things. right? I want to try to keep the amount of break time in between the sessions that we had. That lets people network. And I think that was the good thing about last year and the year before. The year before, everybody kind of, I think, expected it because it was a 10-year party. Um, and we just thought it went so good we'd do it again. But it seemed like people would have preferred more hands-on concrete. So if you came last year and you were looking for more of that, you're going to get it this year. You tell me what you want to learn, the type of instructors you want. I'm going to try to bring in some new instructors we haven't had before to teach all about new things. And uh, I think we'll try to pull back a little bit from as much entrepreneurship. The, the majority of people that were here last year were either really successful in their jobs and didn't care about entrepreneurship, or they were already really successful entrepreneurs. So, you know, well, maybe we'll do one session for people that want that, and, and most of the other sessions are going to be more concrete, hands-on. I think I might even talk to John Pugliano this year, and instead of doing something on money, and you hear about money all the time, maybe have him do a session on ham radio. And, and alternatives to ham radio. Um, and how you can listen even if you're not a ham and you're not talking. And, and different means of communications. I think that would be great for him to do. I'm sure he could bring equipment and do you know a demonstration on stuff like that. So I just want to know what y'all want to see. Next up, um, I've been hearing from y'all for years that I need to get on Joe Rogan's show. I'd love to do that. I'd love to hear from you. What, what can we do? There was a long time, long, long time ago. I think I was only doing it about a year and a half, the show. And I wanted to get on, I don't even think it was a year and a half, I wanted to get on Judge Napolitano's show. And we kind of got together, and you guys hit him up and said, hey, you need to have Jack on. And lo and behold, I went to New York City and was on Judge Napolitano's show. Um, I, I don't think that maybe Rogan has quite the on-ramp that Napolitano did. He had a kind of thing that kind of worked like Dig, where people made a guest suggestion and got voted up. We just hammered that. We became their most requested guest ever, so they had us on. But, you know, I don't even... I've listened to a few episodes of Joe Rogan, and I generally am driven by his guests. I like Joe, don't get me wrong. I just, I'm, I'm not a guy that listens to anybody else's podcast all the time. I try to stay original, so I try not... And I memorize things without trying, is the kind of memory I have. So I'll use other people's material, and I won't always credit the source, because I don't even realize I'm doing it at times. So I try to be very guarded about that. So I pick and choose what I listen to from other people. And, you know, people like Randall Carlson and Graham Hancock, I've, I've loved the episodes with them. They had a, a lady doctor on recently on vitamin D. I, I've reached out to her about bringing her on this show. Um, it's, I've generally been driven by the guest. So I don't really know, like, how does Rogan or his staff get guest suggestions? How do they find out? Like, But if you guys can get back with me and let me know, any of you all that know, uh, maybe we can put a little bit of a consorted effort, and I'll try to get on Joe's show. I think it would be good for TSP and the community, and I think I could do a, a good job for him, too. I think I could bring some stuff to the table, um, especially on what's going on right now. I'd like to come on about what's going on right now with hydroxychloroquine and the way that people are being lied to and the way you know that, but I'd like to talk about other things to do with natural health, take care of yourself, permaculture, whatever, um, and I think I could come up with a good suggestion of, of, of content to give him. His interviews are long. They're like three hours. Uh, I have no problem filling out three hours and generally without boring people. So uh, if y'all can talk to me or just, if you know, just suggest 
to, to Joe's people to have me on. I, I would definitely do what it takes to get on there. Uh, next up, um, want to finish up today and let you know that we have a, a sale on the MSB, and I want to tell you the f- quick version of the funny story about how this sale happened. This is a, a sale that I will credit John Willis with the idea for doing. I haven't done one of these in a couple of years. A few years ago, I did it for a guy named Travis who was a vegan troll on Facebook, and I did a, a sale where I made the, the code word bacon. Bacon. Bacon was the, the code word, and people got a great deal. This year, I'm making the code word Delta Force. And you'll have to wait for it to hear why if you didn't hear the video I did on Facebook about this. But this was pretty funny to me. So last week after I did the show on the doctors that were censored, I got an email from a guy saying that he was considering rejoining the the MSB, but he was going to have to turn me down if I was going to continue with content that was alt-right uh, and politically charged and pro-Trump, which I found amusing and basically told him to go F himself, and I wasn't going to really worry about whether he joined the MSB or not uh, or rejoined the MSB or not, and I wouldn't alter my content. In fact, I had just done a show that I literally felt risked me being deplatformed from like iTunes and risked my entire income because I thought it was important. So certainly his $25, 50 whatever it was going to be, was not important enough to me for me to alter my programming for, and he should go find someone else to listen to. But then I got to thinking about it. He had responded, like when he sent me this email, it was actually a response to an email from me that had been sent to my members. He was declining a renewal offer. For a sale price. And it was the kind that I don't send to everybody. I send it only to expired members out of the MSB. So every once in a while I might do a win back for people that are expired and I'll send them some sort of incentive. And I started thinking, I haven't done that this year. I haven't done this in a long time. What the hell email is he replying to? You know, because any, any of it would have been long expired. So I, <laughs> I pulled it up again and read his email and looked at the offer. And he was declining an offer to come back from 2016. Yeah, it was a four-year-old email, and he was just now going to renew under an offer that was not available. When I say seven-day offer, I mean seven-day offer. That's how it works. From 2016. So I'm thinking, when was this guy a member? So I looked up his account, and the last time he had been a member was 2011. So nine years had gone by, and suddenly he was just about to renew, except I went alt-right. So now he can't. So I wrote him back and told him, you are a moron, and I'm going to use this to make money. And he said, I forbid you to use me or anything about me to make money. And I said, well, you're too late. I'm already going to do it. So I did a I did a live feed on video where I told the story. I didn't give away any of his personal information. I wouldn't do that. I'm not MSNBC or CNN or Fox News. I don't dox people. Right? I don't unmask people's identity. I don't do that shit. Um, I just referred to him as J, which was one of his two initials. And uh, so anybody with the initial J could be this guy. But I did give away what his username was since he's no longer a member. doesn't really matter. His username was Delta Force. This was a self-entitled purple, purple breather permaculture SJW hippie, and his, his username was Delta Force. So how that applies to you, um, you, can use the use, you can use the discount code Delta Force and get MSB for $25. That sale runs all this week. So if you've been waiting to be a member or you have an expired account, you've been meaning to renew, you can get your renewal for $25 with code 
a discount code Delta Force, all one word. I should have called it Delta Farce because that's Delta Force. You gotta be kidding me! This guy's about as Delta as he is Beta, I guess. Anyway, or he's about he's about as Beta as uh, he ain't Delta. He is Beta, I guess is probably the way to look at. It. Anyway, um, just I thought it was fun, and I get these types of emails all the time. I usually don't share them. I could do like a Moonbat email of the week. Uh, this is pretty tame compared to some of the stuff that I get. Uh, but yeah, he responded to a four-year-old email just about to renew accept. I've, I've gone all right and hadn't been a member in uh, nine years. Had not been a member since 2011. It, it, it boggles my mind that people really think they're supposed to be taken seriously when they do something like that. Oh, a day in the life of a podcaster. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I do appreciate you all. And if you, if you want to support me, joining that MSB, even at that discount, will be really helpful. Uh, it really would. Uh, it's, it's how we keep the lights on around here. All the stuff that we talked about today, if you learned anything, was it worth 20 cents? Then join. If it wasn't worth 20 cents, what would dime? Because that's what it is when it's on sale. The other thing you can do is uh, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you do your online shopping at tspaz, you'll help us no matter what you buy. Today's item of the day is Garrett Juice Plus. Um, I, I brought this around today. This is part of my seven-part um, fertility program for your garden. And if you follow my program, you can really grow more food than you ever believed that you could. Everybody that's done this, even if they've done half of it, And I usually say, if you do, if I give you a plan and you do half of it, you're lucky to get 10% of the results. If you do half of this plan, and you, you pick any of the other stuff you want, but you include the Garrett Juice and the Dr. Earth Fertilizer, you'll get at least half of the promised resort results, and it'll still blow you away. If you made me pick two things in my fertility program, it'd be the Garrett Juice and the Dr. Earth. Now, the reason I brought it around today is right now we're in what I call the turn. The turn is the change before the change. What the hell does that mean? It means that we're heading into fall gardening season a hell of a lot faster than all of y'all think we are, especially y'all in the south where it's going to be hot as hell in through September. You don't realize the turn has begun to turn. And I'll tell you how you know the turn is turning. Even though we have days here that are 100 degrees, when you go out in the morning now, it's a totally different experience than going out in the morning three weeks ago. When you went out in the morning three weeks ago here, It was like going outside with a hot towel on your face. It was miserable. And if it was cool, it was cool for about five and a half minutes. And as soon as the sun came just up to the tree line, not even over it, it was hot. Now you get a good hour to two hours in the morning where it is beautiful out. That's the turn beginning to turn. And the reason it's happening is the days are shortening. And ever since June 21st, the days have been getting shorter. They still feel really long. But we're over a month away from that longest day of the year. And we're a month and a half away from the equinox. Every day from here gets shorter and shorter and shorter. You have a little less buildup of heat during the day, a little more time to cool off at night, and the turn is turning. This is when we need to be getting ready for our fall planting. Or if you live in a climate where you just do what I said my grandparents did, which is let everything grow into the fall, you need to be turbocharging that soil. You need to be turbocharging your nutrients. And the best way I know to do that is with Garrett Juice. It is a fantastic product. Yes, do your foliar feeding where you feed the plants, but this is the time of year to give a good soil drench to the garden, turbocharge that biological activity, get ready to go in the fall. So 
Use the whole thing, but man, now is the time for some Garrett juice on that garden. Make sure to use it in the evening after the intense sun is gone, so especially the stuff you use as a foliar feed, it has time to be taken up and used by the plants before the heat hits it in the next day. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. I went with my own song of the day today. Just went off the reservation from John Adam, uh, who has a great list for me that I'll go back to soon. Um, But I wanted to do something for you guys because Ask Clown Circus 2020 is heating up. Uh, Joe Biden, as his, uh, his watchdogs out from the, the media today, they're proposing that we cancel presidential uh, debates because there won't be an audience, which is stupid. Um, but even if there isn't, what does that have to do with a debate? We don't need an audience for a debate. Like the president and the, vi the, the former vice president can have a debate. Most of the people that watch a debate watch it on TV anyway. Um, and that's just one of the many things of the Ass Clown Circus. And so I was thinking about what is the, the song that really sums up how I feel about politics and media right now? And it's Steeler's Wheel stuck in the middle. And I want you to think about it this way as you listen to this song. It'll be different than you've ever heard it. When you hear clowns, Clowns to the left of me. Here in your head, ass clowns. And that's the government. That's your that's your, your your elected officials. And when you hear jokers, think of the media. Clowns to the ass clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, and here I am. Here we are. Stuck in the middle. That's why we need to focus on the things we actually control. With that's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Smile from my face